So as everybody knows, the 90s and the early 2000s were a wealth of innovation in video game design. You know, there were a lot of studios that didn't weren't really following some sort of grand pattern uh, that came before, and they were using the new available technology to create these radically different kinds of games to follow these idiosyncratic visions and try for the first time to spread them to a wide audience. And, there, you know, a lot of people are really nostalgic for this era because there were a lot of developers that made really cool, sort of special, unique games that had no market appeal and just instantly got the developers shut down. Like, pretty much none, like, none of the developers people fondly remember from, like, the 90s and the 2000s survived, like, 2007 at the very latest. Uh, so today, we are going to be looking at what it would do for some of these developers to get by today and how they could sort of maybe make in the modern day. If they existed in some fashion or were revived and wanted to do the games they were doing before. Yeah, kind of the pattern we're looking at is Obsidian. Uh, You know, as most people know, Obsidian Entertainment, the RPG developer, uh, is made up largely of developers who were or at least at the higher levels, I assume, uh, who were making RPGs in the 90s and the 2000s under the studio head Black Isle. Uh, and they made these kind of really nerdy, techy, writing-heavy games that didn't have enough mass appeal to keep the studio alive, but that are fondly remembered and have a cult following today. Uh, and now they've been like, okay, so let's... Let's try to take on the lessons of the game development for the past 10 years or so, and let's try to make these, like, hyper-niche-directed games that are good enough to have, like, a wide appeal. Let's try to, like... It's actually really interesting, because basically they don't have this gradual slope of innovation to draw from. They just have to kind of infer what it would have been like if people had kept making this kind of game for the past 10 years. And guess what, like, what the modern version would look like. So that's that's kind of what we're going to be trying to do today, is to guess, like, what the modern successful version of this studio's pattern and, like, sort of the, their voice would look like. All right, uh, Chris, why don't you pick a developer to start us off with? We've got a little list here that we, we compiled. Uh, I want you to take first crack. Oh, this is, this is going to be tough. Um... Oh, this is hard. this is actually really harder looking at this list of of now defunct <laughs> studios and trying to find the one that I think would should. Okay, I've I've got I've got I guess one that I I would I would like to see come back. Um, Lucas Arts, the now basically defunct Ooh. game game maker. Um, I I guess in this context, they're they're basically notable for people behind a lot of adventure games, namely you know. Uh, uh, freaking name some Lucas Art. Name some scum games quickly. I can't think of Full Throttle, uh, uh Monkey Island, Grim Fandango. There was Full Throttle wasn't actually a scum game, but uh, it does actually have the scum credits in it. I think. Oh, does it? Yeah, I think this one is is maybe a little bit like the Obsidian example in that we kind of already have this. Um, we do in, in both. Double Fine, basically Double Fine is doing a lot of the, the work that, that they used to do at LucasArts. Um, what, what's the game well, that yeah, just I mean, came out? Of... You're not talking about Broken Age. No, the other one. The the I cannot for the life of me remember the name of this game. Well, that's the, kind the... of the interesting thing, isn't it? Go ahead. I, I'll look this up. 
It's kind of the interesting thing is that, you know, we're kind of like saying, yeah, well, no, here, here's an example of a developer that really has brought this back. And to a point, that's true. You know, Tim Schafer did, in fact, work on some of those old LucasArts games. And now he has his own studio where he's crowdfunding these and very successfully crowdfunded, like, these adventure games that are like a return to this form. Uh, except people didn't respond to them all that well. Yeah, it's generally been pretty lukewarm, hasn't it? Uh, I'll be honest, I haven't played any of Tim Schafer's games ever, so uh, I don't really know what the problem was with the the remakes and the, the new adventure games he's been doing. Um, and it's kind of weird, because we do live in a kind of an era where adventure games have been making a comeback, largely not because of Tim Schafer and uh, the new studio name that I forget. Yeah, when I think of new adventure games, I think of things more like uh, the Charnel House trilogy, uh, and I, you know, I think of things like uh, yeah, there's Cat like Lady. You've got mostly you've got, it's been like horror. You've got like Wadget Eye, like doing these retro esque, like very much in the the mold of Scum games. Um, on the one hand, and and yeah, a lot of those are horror, but you know, you've also got like Primordia and um, the detective series they do the mystery one about a ghost i found what i was looking for and i feel bad that i couldn't remember any of the names involved in this Um, but thimbleweed park by ron gilbert um and and the rest of the team over at terrible toy box that is literally a scum style vm game that is new and was received i think fairly positively it's interesting because i feel like these kinds of well, one of the defining characteristics of this LucasArts era of adventure game, I mean, from a historical perspective, the defining pers- the defining feature is, like, it's not punishing. Like, you don't get arbitrarily, like, oh, sorry, you can't advance anymore, or you die. But, you, you know, nowadays that's pretty agree. standard. I think, yeah, I think from a modern perspective, the, the humor, like the kind of cartoonish art style and the sense of humor is kind of the defining trait. Uh, that That's what stands out most in retrospect. And I actually... I think that we're seeing that there's not as much of a market for that specific brand of humor these days. I don't know. Is it, is it because it's text-based? Yeah, I think I think that there's some... Pro- you know, if I was feeling optimistic, I'd say that there's like a move towards kind of hu- exploring humor through mechanics more. Uh, you know, like you, you look at like, you know, GIFs of games that have like weird physics or that like have kind of visual gags. Uh, like those, those are still pretty successful. But like, actually having funny dialogue is kind of no longer a huge selling feature. Oh, I just um, sorry, I was looking at Wikipedia, and Tim Schafer's article uh, has his list of credits for LucasArts games, and it's like Grim Fandango, project leader, writer, uh, Psychonauts creative director, Star Wars Episode One racer, quote. <laughs> Negatively, Wait, he... never actively tried to sabotage the project, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> That's his credit. So it was a joke credit, and they've incorporated it. Uh, he has the same credit for Star Wars Shadows of the Empire. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure witty dialogue is necessarily out, though. I mean... If you look beyond adventure games and look at games like, uh, you know, the Portal series, uh, 
that game and especially the sequel or like the story is driven entirely by humorous dialogue um i don't think there's no room for that i just wonder if like maybe it's that the dialogue that's being written for these new games isn't actually any good there is that uh actually you know what yeah i think the point is more that like you can't sell the game on the premise of it having funny writing anymore like like honestly if grim fandango wasn't funny if if full throttle wasn't funny those would not have many redemptive qualities as video games it's kind of the, the sense of humor and whimsy is what gives them their specialness. It's kind of like what makes them worth experiencing. Yeah. I think I think probably what we're seeing is just that this kind of adventure game, now the the quality that's sought is a horror experience, which I th- I think probably speaks somewhat to the Well, you know, I was about to say it's that we have like more graphical resources. And like we can kind of visually represent that horror a little better, uh, and, and convey that. Then horror. you thought about the Charnel House trilogy, and you were like, "Oh, yeah, those aren't exactly like <laughs> those aren't exactly <laughs> Crisis." Uh, actually, I'm trying to think of like how like the ratio of like these n- newer adventure games uh, and like like that are horror versus not horror, and uh, like a lot of them seem to me to actually just be mystery games. Um, there's that, and 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 then you know you've got, you've got your outliers like uh, Primordia. Like I'm trying to think of another like big time, well, big time in air quotes uh, adventure game in the old LucasArts model that that is not the Charnel House trilogy. Uh, I mean, I guess there are some. You know, um, Richard and Alice, I think, is another one from the same studio. That is from the same studio, yes. Yeah, yeah. That that that's also Olivia White. And I guess like horror games like that didn't really exist back in the nineties. I mean, there are the FMV efforts. You know, there's Phantasmagoria. Actually, the next I developer mean, I'm going to segue into uh, is an interesting take on this uh, subject. <laughs> okay i mean yes the technically you had some fmv horror games horror in very big air quotes in this case uh i don't think you could contest that the intended effect of playing uh phantasmagoria was that you were scared uh same with phantasmagoria too i mean gabriel knight i think actually is an example of a game that is mostly humor and that has horror elements yeah but um And then on the other end of the spectrum, like, uh, in terms of modern adventure games, you have, like, the new, like, NU adventure games that are, like, the Telltale efforts and and stuff like that. And, and, like, Life is Strange to an extent that are not necessarily really adventure games if you want to get very technical about the genre and what goes into the genre. But there's not a genre that really describes those better than adventure game. Um, You know, they're generally about exploring spaces and in a a not entirely entirely linear fashion and solving some sort of puzzles and stuff like that and telling a narrative with characters and dialogue uh which was a, a an aspect of adventure games that I think a lot of people kind of forget which is that if you wanted to do a game that had a story in it 
for a long time, the adventure game was really the only place that you, you like would be able to do that. Now, if you wanted to tell a game that had like a cinematic story, uh, I should clarify, you know, like obviously games like Diablo or Ultima, they have stories in them, uh, but they're not the same. They, they don't really play up any kind of connection. The early ones, like the earlier RPGs didn't really play up a lot of connection to like cinema and movies and the way dialogue and framing and, and like camera work works in movies in the way that, um, you know, games like full throttle did. I, I'd actually like to pivot here because while we're talking about uh horror story and comedy and adventure games, I, I think we've we've come to the understanding that we don't really know what LucasArts should be doing if it's not what Tim Schafer's doing already. Uh, but let's let's talk about Trilobite. So for those of you who haven't heard of it, you might have heard of The Seventh Guest and The Eleventh Hour and The Seventh Guest and The Eleventh Hour, <laughs> uh, which were really early killer apps for the PC. I mean, really, really early. Uh, that were trying to sell you on like the the awesome power of these new machines by having adventure games with really intensive graphics, like that was well, that was the they were really well wasn't it more they like were really more killer apps for the CD yeah like hey we have enough space to put like f- full motion video on like on a disc and sell it to you and get it to your house uh, isn't that cool. Because, like, you know, uh, the jump from the, like, from the end-era floppy disks to, like, the amount of data that you could store on the first CDs was, like, what, 25 times or something like that? No, a floppy disk was 1.44 megs. An average CD Yeah, but you could get, like, a double-formatted floppy disk, and I think the first CDs so were something like... So it was, like, like, 700 at the times? I, I thought the first CDs were something more like 300. Um... And then they like got they kicked them up pretty quickly to something like five or six hundred. It's interesting because ostensibly these were horror games, but I think it's actually difficult to find uh, an example of the kind of horror the Seventh Guest kind of by definition and like kind of by the limitations of the era was. Like the Seventh Guest was not scary; it was spoopy. Like it was it, scary to it, kids. It was scary. I was to afraid kids. of it. Uh, I mean, yeah, I was also afraid of it as a child, but uh, it, it it was very much like it has these corny F&B cutscenes. Uh, it has, which even then, you know, it's like, okay, it was the best they could do, but it wasn't that great. Cheesy acting was still cheesy acting back in 1993. And then, you know, there's there's kind of like the, the, the narrator speaks like a Vincent Price voice getting a little lonely... And, like, there's these, you know, there's a puzzle involving, like, a cake <laughs> dressed up like a graveyard, if I remember correctly. <laughs> a cake dressed up like a graveyard? So I've never played yeah, Seventh like Guest, a, you know, so like I, I don't... Toppings. I have, like, a vague idea in my head of what the Seventh Guest was uh, from, like, the occasional it's... Let's Play I've seen over the years, where it's, like, about exploring this mansion while a party's going on and ghosts show up or something. Well, the, the yeah. party is ghosts. Oh, it's a ghost party. I feel like ghost, ghost party, party would have been a better name for this game. No, the seventh it, guest is actually a fantastic name for a video game. It's very like it's missed, but with 
spoopy mist. It's spoopy mist is really what it is. Yeah. Exactly. Mist was another one of those, like, here's the power of the CD-ROM games. Yeah, and Trilobite made it pretty clear that this was their aesthetic. Like, this is the kind of video game they wanted to make. And I'm actually... I, I'm down to see the, another game with this kind of horror aesthetic. The question is, what kind of video game would this even be today? Oh, that's really hard, because I'm torn between saying that it's a very specific... Because they sort of have two aesthetics, right? They have a play aesthetic and a, a visual aesthetic. Um, because their play aesthetic is very much filmic, uh, FMV adventure games with obnoxious puzzles to solve. But then their visual aesthetic is very much um, spoopy, but not jump scary, just sort of overall creepy. Uh, a lot of ghosts. I mean, the 11th hour has that cover that has the baby doll face uh, in front of a bunch of clocks. Like, it's just sort of like overall creepy. And I don't know if they'd rather end up making something that is like continuing on in the FMV tradition or if they'd end up making something spoopy that maybe is a bit more modern in terms of its its design. I really don't know which way they'd go. Yeah, you know... The indie section of Steam is full of horror games that amount to wander around an environment, collect items, and solve simple puzzles in a linear fashion while scripted horror events occur. And I can see them making a game like that uh, while retaining kind of their horror sensibilities, which are less about like kind of these stripped down modern monsters that are just like... Let's take the visual elements that are as disturbing as possible when flashed at the camera, uh, thanks to the developing science of shit your pantsology that caught on them in two thousands, and that's more like more theatrical, like sort of more over the top, like more nineties remake of a Vincent Price movie, like that would be pretty special. Uh, but I would also, you're right, I'd miss like the the mist style puzzles in that kind of approach. I think uh, another core question here is, is is being an FMV game, like, necessary for their aesthetic? Like, could they do yeah. it as an FMV game? Because, like, you can still make FMV games. Contradiction in the new Tex Murphy game that I'm not sure. Is that game out yet? Did that game come out? I don't know. Um, I feel like it did. It did. It didn't do that well. It's, what a surprise. It's a Tex Murphy FMV game. Oh, God. Uh, but, you know, like, there's a market for these games in some capacity, but it seems to be kind of, like, entirely built around this nostalgic, like, haha, look at how awful FMV games were. What if we did that with modern equipment? Like, with complete with all the wooden acting and ridiculous over-the-top nonsense you know, it, it's got a charm to it, but I'm not sure, like, would that work for Trilobite and The Seventh Guest, which wasn't, like, an FMV game in the way that, like, Tex Murphy is an FMV game anyway. Um, That's right. I mean, most of the graphics were CG. Yeah. It's just, like, the the actors were FMV. I'm wondering if it would end up with something like abduction 
like a, a 3D environment with maybe FMV projected characters. That'd be pretty fun, actually. I mean, you could dump the FMV I think... stuff, like, and probably, and, and just have some well-animated, you know, 3D character models, and it probably wouldn't be too bad. Although the FMV stuff might give it some of that, like, spark of, like, this is our identity. To be honest, I think that if we're talking about so for examining this from a perspective of how would they be financially successful with this redesign, uh, we're taking the wrong tack because like uh, Schaefer, Trilobite actually did try to kickstart a new seventh guest in the vein of the old one. And unlike Tim Schaefer, they failed several times. Oh man, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was actually pretty embarrassing. I think they might have crowdfunded a board game. Ah, that's sad, because I, I really like... I have strong memories of the 7th cast, and I have strong memories of the 11th hour in particular. But... I, I don't know. I really don't see how you can modernize that in a way that, that it is appealing to today, right? Because if you want scary games today, you play Five Nights at Freddy's, you play those, those spoopy games that are popular, what with the kids. Um... And if you want story-driven games, there are a million other places to get interesting story that isn't sort of a pulpy ghost story. So I don't, I don't know, I don't know what they could do to really sort of be appealing. This is a hard one. Yeah. Are we going to conclude that they're just too weird to survive? I think they could do it, but. I think you would need to know what it was that they would want to preserve. Is it yeah. the FMV aspect? Is it the horror aspect? Is it the narrative aspect? Is it the puzzle aspect? Without knowing that, I, I think it's, we're kind of picking yeah. it. Is it stuff. is it all of the above? And like, would that work? Maybe I don't know. Uh, I I think your idea of abduction with like FMV projected characters could be interesting. And like, set it in some you know like clue esque haunted manner. That was the thing that I think sort of unites both of those games is this like fancy Victorian house that has ghosts yeah. in it. If you can if you can get something like that, maybe I, I think you could find a way to make a game about that concept that works. I mean, there are already a, or not, but... a number of like adventure games that use like high class, you know, rich mansion Victorian like houses. Uh, as their backdrop for whatever the fuck horror they're going to do, which is usually just jump scares. I, I think it would be interesting to see them, like, take that, kind of turn it on its head and go, like, okay, this is a spooky game, maybe a horror game. It's set in this spooky mansion, but we're not going to do the jump scare stuff. We're just going to have, like, weird ghosts hanging out and give it a kind of whimsy that you don't get in games like Amnesia. Or, or all of the derivatives. Come to think of it, LucasArts actually developed in-house uh, two FMV games as well. Uh, and they were the Rebel Assault series, and they were not good. They were bad. Uh, Alright, do I get to pick one? Yeah, why don't you pick one? Cool, hmm. Uh... Let's go with something that was a bit more on my level 
during my childhood and teenage years. Uh, let's talk about Westwood. And Westwood is an interesting one because, like, not only did they continue to kind of exist um, in that, like, some of the studio people came over after the Westwood studio was closed and it became, uh, and, and they went into one of those EA generic studios, um, but they also sort of tried to bring Command and Conquer back in the mid-2000s and it went okay and they actually did a lot of the kind of stuff that we're talking about on our list so when you think about command and conquer in the 90s you think about um the guys that are not blizzard doing their take on strategy games on rts's um they actually invented the genre and then blizzard you know doing what blizzard does uh basically aped all the good stuff and kind of perfected it um and then you also think of uh, of really, really cheesy B-movie, um, literally using the cast of War Games uh, FMV sequences for mission briefings. Um, and really hammy stuff. And, like, somehow they, for the third game they did, they managed to get Michael Bean and uh, James Earl Jones as two of the main characters like what the fuck and they they show up and and they're they act horribly for the most part like especially michael bean is doing this like horrible like what the fuck is the director doing kind of acting uh james earl jones is a little bit better but then james earl jones can do ham without actually looking like he's doing ham so um you know i mean he was in Conan. james earl jones can turn ham into pulled pork right exactly and and in the mid two thousands they they brought that back so so uh, basically what happened is after the release of Red Alert two um, in like ninety nine I think ninety eight um, the studio basically went bankrupt and was bought up by EA or something to that effect uh, and then they produced uh, Command and Conquer Generals which was in many ways, a better game gameplay wise than the previous games in the series, but lacked all the charm. It was like generic, like very much 2000s America. Like this is like this game was released six months into the Iraq war. So this is all about the the good guys preserving freedom America versus the the extremely racistly typecast uh arabic muslim uh liberation force versus like china um and it was like all very generic looking uh it had no fmv cutscenes or anything in fact the, the story was very difficult to follow because the uh initial game before the expansion was just like you got your mission briefings as news reports, like like fake cable news, like so there was an attack on the da 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 da. da. Um, so, and then, so does this even take place in the Command and Conquer timeline? No, no, it's completely like this different. Not or Kane or no? Okay, this no, is it's super... just it's America and China and like fantastically racist take on. Uh, you know, pa- Arab paramilitary forces or something. 
I, I really don't want to go off on a rant about EA, but they really need to learn how to like have their IPs mean something. Because well, like Command and Conquer without any of the properties is as bad as what they've done to Need for Speed, where it's a meaningless franchise at this point. So that's the thing. Um, and then uh, like this came out in 2003 and then like there was nothing for about five years. Then 2008, they actually bring back the like Nod and Kane and GDI stuff and they do Command and Conquer 3 Tiberium Wars and it has the older school Command and Conquer gameplay uh, and it has like hammy FMV cutscenes with uh, Joe Cook and his cane and uh, like Michael Ironside and um, a few other people. Um, and then a couple years later they do, um, or I, I think it was actually just about a year later or something. They did uh, red alert three and had, you know, ha- like even hammy or even more ridiculous cutscenes and stuff um, with uh, the likes of like Tim Curry and George Takei and, J.K. Simmons might have been in that game, now that I think about it. <laughs> Wasn't uh, Carmen Electra or someone like that in it, too? Like some, yeah, or some I think so. Patel they got. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because, like, they, so they, they kind of did all this ten years ago. And it's interesting to look back at it, and I, I don't think they really succeeded all that well. Um, I don't think the game sold that fantastically well. well. And, like, frankly, as a fan of the series from before all that, um, it almost felt like they kind of misread the the why the FMV cutscenes were cool, especially with, like, Red Alert 3, where it felt like they went into it with this, like, we are going into this to make hammy FMV cutscenes, whereas it seemed like in the original games there was something more genuine about it. Something more like, like they were trying to make something serious or at least semi-serious with some humor. And because of the realities of trying to do that in like 1997, uh, it came out as hammy and ridiculous. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I remember enough about, uh, red alert three to remember the whole Tim Curry space, Right, scene, which was <laughs> which, hilarious, but yeah, they were trying too hard. No, they weren't trying too hard. They they went in trying to make a Sharknado of RTS games. Yeah, like, exactly. Ev- everyone is cast intentionally to be awful. Every every actor is in on it, and it's really fun. But it's also weightless and dumb. And they didn't upgrade any of the mechanics. Like the game still played like Red Alert, for good and for ill. It kind of suffers the ukulele problem, I think, where it's yeah. like, this yeah, is straight exactly. up a, a late 90s Command & Conquer game in the same way that ukulele is straight up Banjo-Kazooie, and it's got all the good parts you remember, and all the bad parts, and it, we have not tried to fix anything. Um, and the RTS genre has fundamentally changed a lot since Command & Conquer, because that was a pioneering game in that genre, and they need to find... I think if you were going to do a Westwood game now, you would still want to have FMV cutscenes um, that have characters that sort of are the important generals and whatever. Um, but you'd really want to focus on having mechanics as an RTS that work good. And I, I don't know how you fix Command and, and Conquer because it's interesting. so basic. 
that you bring that up because the the end of this era of of this revival of Command and Conquer was them attempting to amend the mechanics to make something that um, might have more mass appeal, and they basically did. Um, uh, they turned it into a real time tactics game like um, uh, Dawn of War Two, I think. Um, uh, yeah, uh, so they took out all the base building and you had like, you know, your units and you went around the map, uh, capturing capture points and it sucked. It was bad. Uh, and it was like, like ostensibly sort of like more multiplayer focused and that never really took off. And pretty much the only reason to play that game or remember that it existed is because it had Joe Kukin in it as Kane in FMV cutscenes, and that's it. Um, uh, so I don't know, like that, that's a, an interesting thing to, to think about because like by and large, the RTS genre is dead and it has been dead for the past 10 years or longer. I feel okay. First of all, that's not entirely true because you have the small scale tactical stuff of, uh, Dawn of War and company of heroes. Like that one, right. that one company is keeping that genre kind of alive. Um, but also, I feel like we're due for a comeback. Like I, I kind of like everyone declared the adventure game genre dead for like a decade, and then it it exploded. And I feel like we're due for a strategy game comeback. Also, StarCraft Two, I guess technically still exists. I mean, it's, um, StarCraft Two but... is that like sort of weird um, anomaly of like Blizzard can put out whatever the fuck they want and people will like it. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, of course, people are going to not buy to say StarCraft Blizzard 2. games are bad. But no, yeah. no. Um, but but like Blizzard is kind of immune to like this genre is dead. Well, we're gonna make a really good one anyway because that uh, we can do that. We have the clout to do that. Yeah, we're not gonna say that StarCraft Two is bad. We're, we're gonna say it didn't have to be good. Yeah. Uh, although there are certainly aspects of StarCraft Two that are apparently very bad, like all the story stuff. Uh, but then Blizzard has never been very good at stories, so like never ever. No, they really haven't. Um. What what is the best Blizzard story? Diablo two? <laughs> Diablo yeah. two, yeah. I mean Warcraft yeah. three was okay. It Warcraft three was a pot boiler fantasy novel. Mm-hmm. And it didn't have higher aspirations and it knew when to shut the fuck up. So it worked out. Arthas is really the thing that holds that entire game together. Arthas' story is pretty good. Exactly. Arthas' story is solid, hits a lot of emotional cues, and isn't too far up its own emotional ass. And then World of Warcraft kind of got really up its own emotional ass. And its own lore ass. It's up two assholes at once. (laughs) The lore ass sounds like a Dr. Seuss character. (laughs) (laughs) So, I guess the question... I was just going to grouse about World of Warcraft stories more, so go ahead. I guess the question we should be asking here is, like, if you were to bring, like, the the traditional RTS concepts into the modern era um, in a way that, like, like I, I feel like, especially for Command & Conquer, the base building is a, an integral component. Um... And like taking that out, like kind of fundamentally changes what the game's about, and that like that contributed to 
was not the sole reason for, but contributed to the fact that to the reason why Command and Conquer Four was so poorly received. Um, like, it, also the game just did not control very well, and the units were boring, and the art style was bad. But you know, like, also there's that element of like Command and Conquer is about building bases and then building armies, like even more so than like Warcraft or Starcraft, which are often. Um, because of the way that esports work, um, you know they have they have been pushed very far into the like competitive multiplayer stuff in a way that Command and Conquer never really did. And in the competitive multiplayer, you know you don't focus on building bases and building base defenses so much because the balance is so much more on getting your rush together and going as quickly as possible. I feel like there's one of two ways that a modern game could go about that, and one is either sort of the way that the um, the Dawn of War team and Company of Hero team, uh, Company of Heroes team have gone and sort of doubling down on focusing on individual units and maybe having base building be a way to give those units new abilities or new perks. So like being able to build a helipad so that you can then like as a tactical soldier point at a thing within within range and call a helicopter to come attack the yeah. thing and either cause a distraction or whatever. So you would either have to do base building as a means to power up a small number of powerful units, or you step back to base building and really refocus on base building to step away from what StarCraft has done, where base building is more of a... In StarCraft, base building is a... First of all, it's a race of UI clicking. Yeah, it's a it's time limit factor. It, the base building in, in is also in StarCraft um, all about build order and choosing whether you want to go for bigger units first or whether you want to focus on low-level stuff in case of a rush. And it's sort of a gamble, that whole setup. Again, that's very multiplayer-focused. I'm wondering if you could sort of step back to base building and really look at it as a means of setting up a real economy, which is something that I think uh, Command & Conquer tried lightly to do by just sort of saying... You know, uh, go mine Tiberium. We don't... Whatever. It's it's what you do to build stuff. You need money, you mine Tiberium. That gives you stuff. But then you also yeah. need electricity. So build some power plants. I, fe I feel like you make the base building more complicated and interesting. And so each unit that you build matters more. Because it requires more interesting, complicated infrastructure to keep alive. Um, that might make the game interesting again. Really focus on, like... It's not so much about just setting up a base and then building a shitload of units and then just overwhelming your bad guys. It's it's about building a base and setting up enough infrastructure to be able to get to complicated units while also building enough guys to defend yourself until you get the proper units to attack. Um, you could do something like that. That would and be probably like, interesting. Maybe an element of like there are multiple different kinds of resources that you need to have access to and they're not necessarily oh, totally. all going to be in the same place on the map so you need to like set up expeditions to go and like take and hold certain areas of the territory and and you know that becomes you know what defines where battles are going to happen as you fight over resources right on the map. yeah because if there's one thing that's really defined um rts games in terms of base building it's your base is really confined to your little corner of where the resources are located yeah. i'd love to see a game where like you're building you're intentionally building buildings all over the map that could be really cool and that's not really a mechanic that you see too often in uh in, mo in most games um i think that could be neat did anybody else feel like dawn of war kind of simultaneously revolutionized and then in the next breath completely destroyed the traditional rts i could see that 
I mean, Dawn it's of like War that game came... almost like convergently evolved into the same sort of stuff that that MOBAs did, right? Like where this the focus That's... is more on units and less on like structures and base building. That's precisely how it happened, though. It's like, you know, Dawn of War came out and was like, hey, what if we had a real-time strategy game that was focused a little bit more, on, a little less on, like, fiddly logistics and a little bit more on kind of these immediate visceral elements, uh, kind of, like, a having managing these forces not in such a micro way, but in a slightly more, like, uh, about zone control and about yeah. and bring in all these team sports things. And everyone was like, oh, that sounds great. I can't wait to see the new genre of RTSs that have this blend of resource management and, like, zone control. And then, the like, by the time the next Dawn of War comes out, it's like, yeah, we decided we don't want to do the base management stuff so much <laughs> anymore. And everyone, it's like the, it's like the spell of Dune-styled RTSs was instantly broken. I, I think that's the the trick of it. That is the real trick because the modern RTS, uh, with Dawn of War and MOBA influence and everything else, has moved away from base building almost entirely to focus on units. And now you've either got lane control stuff like MOBAs, or you've got um, sort of tactical strategy games, but in real time. You know, your Final Fantasy tactics, but in real time, like in your Company of Heroes. To to bring a Westwood style game into 2017 would be to find a way to make base building matter again. If you can make a game about building a base that then gives you troops that like, lets you deploy them in a way that isn't just the StarCraft style build a bunch you know build order matters and then build a bunch of crap and then go attack someone, um, that I think would be the key. If you could figure that out, you could do this. And then fun FMV cutscenes, because yay. Yeah, yeah. Fun FMV cutscenes that are not about making ridiculous FMV cutscenes. I, I think you could do an in intentionally campy Sharknado yeah. version of the game if you if, if you if you did it right. The problem is they played the story straight while the acting was all camp. Um I, the game needed to be more aware of its camp if it was gonna do that. Yeah, I feel like CNC three did okay with the FMV cutscenes in a way that like Red Alert three did not. Um, cause the, you know, cause the Tiberian stuff had always been a, a somewhat more serious setting. So like the camp was, was more of a like actors acting out too much and less of a, like, this is also kind of ridiculous and funny. Um, and then like Red Alert 2 was always just this sort of like wacky alternate universe seventies setting. Yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. I think you can maybe like up the scale a la Supreme Commander, maybe make the maps bigger and that would probably add emphasis to the base building element where like you can't just put together one little tank rush and go and take over the whole map. Uh all right, who's next? Oh, oh sorry. Rutskern. Were you going to Yeah, let's them? um hmm. No, I I have nothing more to add about Command Conquer. Okay. I'm just picking out a good one. Okay, uh, I don't know. We want to go controversial? What was we going to say? I think we've been going for almost an hour, so let's, you know, maybe two more of these. Okay. Okay. Let's do 3D Realms. So 3D Realms uh, made... Okay, so, yeah, they're well-known for dying because they failed to deliver 
Duke Nukem Forever for over a decade. But is that <laughs> actually the reason why they died? Yes. Uh, could If they had kept making games... Ex- well, yes, it is the reason why they died, but let me put it this way. How much of a market is there for the 3D Realms brand of like super macho, not politically incorrect shooter these days? Because, you know, at the one hand, you know, you don't think of, like, gamers as being a very politically correct bunch, but on the other hand, you don't actually see a lot of shooters that have this kind of crass element to them anymore. I mean, Duke Nukem Forever came out, and it was very widely panned for how crass it was. Yes. I think it's possible that you could develop a game that has kind of the same like impish immature spirit as the original games without being kind of quite as gross like that's that's the problem with duke nukem forever is that it's 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 not that it's like immature it's that it's like 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 you kind of feel like you don't want to be in this world yeah like this is like this is duke's fantasy world and it's not a very pleasant place to be Oh, I I feel like if you were going to be a, this is going to get me in trouble. Um, if you were really aiming to be a, a a sort of independent first person shooter with an attitude style company in 2017, um, your output would probably look pretty similar to a lot of what Devolver does, although Devolver is more of a publisher than a a developer. Oh, I was actually thinking about that's Gearbox. That's not unfair. Because, I mean... Gearbox has that... Gearbox. Well, I, I think it's an important thing to bring up, because Gearbox does kind of do the, uh, the um, like, charmingly immature, uh, sort of irreverent shooters um, with some element of crassness to it, but not nearly at the level of like um, the the Duke Nukem like toilet humor stuff. Um, I think it's it's somewhat mitigated by the format that they've chosen to make Borderlands into, where Borderlands is basically Diablo as a shooter. So there's a lot of time spent not really doing anything to do with the story and a lot of the like humor comes from like, hey, that bad guy is a 20 foot tall midget, um, you know, like 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 from from sort of environment and like enemy design more than like dialogue and and, you know, cutscene stuff that Duke Nukem kind of had. I mean, yeah, they they are in a sense making these games still like they're they're making new Shadow Warrior games, and those are doing okay. And how they're styling them is they're just making these very kinetic, polished but not super high budget uh, first person shooters that have like some kind of goofy and over the top elements, but aren't really ruled by them. Yeah, and also like in the case of Shadow Warrior, like trying to strike a balance between like being kind of this B-movie and not being racist like the original Shadow Warrior was. (laughs) I think part of the problem is that even though 3D Realms as a company doesn't exist anymore, their influence is still pretty widely felt. Like, 
Randy Pitchford works at Gearbox, but he used to work at 3D Realms. Like, and he's a big head honcho over at Gearbox, which is weird, right? Like, not weird that he's the CEO of Gearbox, but that, like, he carries that mentality forward with him to Gearbox, which is, I think, why Josh immediately associates... Yeah. I mean, they were involved in finishing Duke Nukem Forever, right? Like, Yeah, there's that element, but also, like, the, the other, like, style of, you know, the stuff they've done aside from that, especially Borderlands, is, is very well, much along those lines. I, I was thinking, like, actually, I actually, people can fly... Because Bulletstorm fly, yeah. is very, uh, very much a Duke Nukem game to the point where they put Duke Nukem in it after it came out for the re-release. So wait, what? Yeah, Bulletstorm Full Clip Edition came out, and it's a, um, it's a or is coming out, and it's a re-release of Bulletstorm for modern consoles, and it has a mode where you can play as Duke Nukem <laughs> in in that <laughs> the game. Fuck. Does it have John St. John? Yeah. Huh. Well, at least he has work. You know, actually, I have I have a weird thought about Duke Nukem, uh, and I, I I want to see what you guys think of it. And I want to circle back around to what you said, Chris, about Devolver Digital, because it occurred to me that one of the things that I think made Duke Nukem work in its era isn't just like you know, the other the drift in culture as much. Uh, I think that it's actually the fact that Duke Nukem was kind of minimalist like the actual visual elements and sort of storytelling going on was very simple and like it, it it's mostly like it was a shooter and then there was like these touches that add like sort of referenced this character of like a stereotypical 90s macho womanizing action figure and it's kind of like with that level of exposure, it could be funny. Like a, but I, I feel like one of the things that really comes across when you watch footage of Duke Nukem Forever is that when you see a fully realized world that is in every sense detailed to this very stupid character, uh, it quickly becomes tiresome at best. Because it's, 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 it's no longer just kind of like over-the-top touches. It's like just kind of a never-ending self-parodic mess. Yeah. Like, it's it's good as an... It, like, it, it can work as an accent, but it can't work as the meal. That That's a good way to put it. Um, I, I think, like, Duke Nukem in Duke Nukem 3D is horrible, but he's horrible in fits and starts. You know, he's he's horrible when, when there are, like, specific scenes that let him be horrible, and that's, like, once or twice an episode in otherwise big adventures that are mostly about shooting aliens, whereas in Duke Nukem Forever, his awfulness is front and center because they he won't shut up, and it is basically a series of set pieces to let him be a douchebag, and they try to be kind of self-aware of that, but it never really works in a way that the old games did where the old game sort of yeah he's probably a douchebag but he's saving the world whereas the new game duke nukem forever is just constantly he's you being are a douchebag douche every 30 seconds yeah, yeah every are, 30 seconds i i think if you wanted to make duke nukem work as a protagonist you would have to 
like rewrite the character as to in in something more of a mold of like Sterling Archer, where yeah, you know, Duke Nukem is just like I am awful all the time, whereas Archer is more just like kind of a, a competent sort of like book smart idiot uh, that's a dick to his coworkers who are dicks to him. Um, or, or have, if, if you want to keep Duke Nukem the way he is, I think that could also work, but you need to have the universe recognize that he's an insufferable yeah. asshole. The problem is Duke Nukem is an insufferable asshole who gets rewarded with like all the women love him and he lives in a giant palace in Las Vegas and there are statues to his honor and he owns a McDonald's franchise that bears his name and he is a movie star and people want his autograph and all of these things are true. These are not exaggerations. These are things that happen in, in the Duke Nukem universe. He, he's and... a schoolyard bully in a movie where like, yes, you know, bullies can't do that by and large in real life. They'll get fucking smacked down. Um, or at least to the extent that schoolyard bullies in movies do. Uh, but in, in Duke Nukem's case, like the universe is like, well, fucking whatever. In that way, actually, now that you mention all the ridiculous stuff, it's Saints Row, like the later Saints Row games seem like oh, yeah. Duke Nukem games That's to an extent. Point. In terms of being sort of vaguely transgressive, but also way less awful, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Actually, I think I'd really want to play a game where, like, you just have to... Like, I think if I was going to incorporate Duke Nukem in all of his glory in a video game, it would be a video game where, like, like you're you're trying to, like, do the, your own thing. And then, like, for one chapter, just, like, you get partnered with him. And it immediately becomes clear that, like, while, like, he may be cool to some people in some contexts, he's not the kind of person you want to work with. You know, now that Josh brings it up, Get Out of Hell is is very much a Duke Nukem style story, but it it it's the framing that's different. Where Gat is simultaneously deified but also obnoxious, and you know the game doesn't actually like him, even though the universe around him does treat him as an awesome mascot, which is what the Duke Nukem universe does for Duke Nukem. And I, I think I think Gat in in Saints Row is a great comparison to Duke Nukem, where the Saints Row series knows how to treat its obnoxious celebrity character that is so full of himself and is ultra violent. Whereas I don't know the Duke Nukem series of old really did. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, Gat and Duke Nukem both acknowledge or like, but both like respect the fact that in this world, they are awesome badasses, but Nukem wallows in it. Everything he does plays to this sense of ego. Gat, like, gets things done. Like, you you can imagine Gat going to the grocery store and buying a cup noodle and coming home and watching The Thing on cable. You can't imagine Duke Nukem doing that. He would be too busy, like, filming a movie about himself and then having sex with a lot of people. While ha- with a smug, shit-eating grin on his face before stealing a catchphrase from an 80s action hero. Well, that, that's the other weird thing about both Saints Row and Duke Nukem comparisons, where, like, 
in in one sense, Duke Nukem is way more confident about sex because he's having sex all the time, and and he's such a manly figure. But then you like really look at what's going on, and it's like. Saints Row is so much more comfortable in dealing with sex than Duke Nukem, where Duke Nukem is like jokes about glory holes and going to a strip club and it mostly just feels grimy and sad, whereas Saints Row is more about like, eh, if anyone loves you and you love them back, it's great, go have sex, it's great. And and Saints Row doesn't really care, whereas Duke Nukem is, is all... It's just you feel grimy after dealing with the sex jokes. And so it's not even the, the fact that one has sex jokes and the other doesn't. It's it like... Again, it's a framing issue. Everything about Duke Nukem works with Gat, but Gat is framed better on every level. I don't know. I, you know, and, and I don't want to imply anything about fans of the series. Like, it, like this, this is only about like the actual game sensibilities. It's not about like you if you enjoy them. But like, as video games, no, like. Saints Row has fucked Duke Nukem hasn't and posts on reddit about it a lot <laughs> <laughs> i think it's campster's turn to pick one now is it all right let me uh load the list up here oh what are we gonna do um none of these are particularly easy to talk about because they're all so varied all right let's go with an easy one um maxis maxis is dead and gone and everyone is sad um, how could we make Maxis work as a company in 2017? That's hard. I don't. I don't know if I have a great it's... immediate answer to that. I mean, Maxis is Maxis an interesting definitely one. could not make Maxis work as a company. Well, it, it kind of still exists, though. I mean, you still got the Sims games, and you uh, could kind of argue that like name exists. that like the Sims is something different and separate from the rest of Maxis's efforts. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I would. Especially in the way that it I, I think the last, the, the last original Maxis game was Spore. I, I love The Sims, and The Sims is definitely a Maxis game. But at this point, The Sims is a separate brand that does its own thing. Yeah. Um, it definitely feels at this point like if they're not trying to figure out how to adapt The Sims more or less exclusively to mobile platforms as a kind of freemium game... Like, they were freemium before freemium was a thing. Like, with their, like, 30 expansion packs. Yep. And, uh, never going down Except I say, I say freemium. I say freemium, but of course, you know, they've all been full-priced releases. Yep. That then just have a bunch um, of expansion packs. There's nothing wrong is... with that on the face of it. Let's, it's really, really expensive to buy all the Sims 3 DLC. I mean... Moving away from The Sims, I I, I think what I, what I would call a Maxis game is basically any attempt to simulate an interesting system that is based on a real system in in any engaging way, right? Like, give me some engaging attempt to systemize a real life system. This this basically stems from when they were in the late '90s doing the Sim Everything approach yeah. to merchandising sim, um, sim life town sim life sim copter sim earth sim isle sim isle was fantastic um some earth was really interesting in the like fact that it very clearly led up into spore and it turned out that was not a good idea but i feel all like of these paradoxically games... the better what? rendering gets 
the less appealing a lot of these simulators really are. Yeah, that's one of the problems. And and I, I keep toying with eventually doing a, a thing on that about, like, losing a, a degree of abstraction means that you no longer are running the system in your head and then you're expecting the system to work very, very literally and realistically and that kind of ruins these sort of sim games. And a lot of RPGs, for the record. Um, that, that sort of rely on the suspension of disbelief. Which but... was actually a problem experienced by the latest SimCity game where uh, they put all that effort into making, like, individual citizens being simulated. And it, like... And on the one hand, you can understand why they were going with that because, like, they had the power to and, and you know, hey, that's an interesting way to simulate a city is you just simulate all the people in it at once. But on the other hand, like, the tech isn't quite there yet, so when it did stuff that, like, made absolutely no sense and it became clear that, like, it was really hacky with the way that it um, simulated people, it, like, broke the whole simulation uh, and all suspension of disbelief because you realize that, like, these are not people. These are incredibly stupid AI it's it's interesting because I, I remember reading in PC Gamer back in the late 90s about how um, SimCity 3000 was going to be this amazing 3D simulation of every aspect of running a city. And you could do things like pass ordinances that would require people to turn off their air conditioning to save money on, on power uh, consumption at the expense of property values. Like it was going to be this really, really in-depth sim that would give you every aspect of every single thing. And that is not the game that ultimately got released. SimCity well, 3000 was a traditional isometric uh, top-down uh, city-building game. And about the only real ad additions were mostly landfills and uh, landmarks and a couple other things. The game um, you and it described was a game for it. Uh, bankrupted the company and was the reason why they were bought out by EA. Because uh, they ran out of money trying to make this ridiculously complex 3D game. I don't even think they had the 3D engine working at the time that EA bought them. Um, and and it just did not work. And they spent a whole bunch of money on it and nothing really came out of it. And then EA got in there and said, like, okay, scrap this do SimCity 2000 again. Uh, and that's what they did. It was a better game. I, that, that was the right decision. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if a 3D SimCity was ever going to be the right decision. Um, but if you're going to make a, a, a Maxis game now, I agree with Rutzgar, and I think you need to step back and make it a little bit more abstract visually. Um, I, I don't know how abstract. I think these days you kind of have to have it be 3D and probably have a certain level of being able to zoom in, but you want to keep the player at a distance if you're going to simulate a system. Or you could just perfectly render an abstraction. Like, if you're a city planner, you just make a perfect copy of a city planning desk. That might be too abstract, but yes, you could also do that. I mean, I'm not totally convinced about this, because, like, you're implying that SimCity cannot work as SimCity, but, like, uh, city skylines is a pretty decent city builder, I think, and it doesn't really do what you're talking about. Um, no, it, it, granted, it does. The thing it, it that keeps it's the player based, at a distance. Yeah, it keeps the player at a distance, but it's not like 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 you know you can zoom in and you can actually follow around individual uh, citizens, and they tend to do weird stuff. And the fo the focus is not on those though. Um, the focus is on the fact that it was built out of a city traffic simulator so all the road stuff is really good um 
and everything else is kind of like secondary to that. You can tell from the way the the design works that that was the the like original mechanic that was was the genesis of the game. Well, we wouldn't even be talking about cities necessarily anyway. I, a traditional sim, a, a Maxis game from the '90s would be a simulation of something you wouldn't necessarily expect, right? Like Sim City, Sim Ant, Sim Farm, Sim Earth, Sim Life, Sim Isle, Sim Town, Sim Copter. All of these games are simulations that that are not necessarily hardcore in their simulation of reality but both try but all of them try to convey a certain idea of a thing what is it like to be an ant what is it like to try to run an island full of unskilled labor that also has a tourist industry that requires some degree of skilled labor what does it mean to have genetics that get passed on from species to species and how do you handle that all of that is an interesting approach to different systems and if i were going to be a maxis in 2017 I would want to have a, a, a some sort of idea of some sort of system I would want to simulate that would be something you wouldn't necessarily expect, right? Because I, as much as I love City Skylines, City Skylines is just a SimCity game that is not screwed up like SimCity 2013. Yeah. It's, it's not a new Maxis game. I, I think something like Kerbal Space Program is closer to what you would think of a Maxis game in 2017, right? Like, we're going to sim space. Sim space flight is basically what Kerbal is. Um, even to some extent, like that bridge builder physics game or or that terrible virus game of being a virus, those are closer to Sim City game or Maxis games than a I think a, a modern Sim Sim City builder game. Um, so I don't know. I, I I would if I was going to make a Maxis game in 2017, I would try to find the most interesting system I could find, and then run with it and make it some crazy deep interesting system full of choices and then make it cute like Kerbal. But I think Kerbal is probably your, your baseline for what Maxis would look like in 2017. Alternately, maybe prison simulator. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, you know what prison simulator and, and like dwarf fortress and rim world are all very heavily simulator games based on like individual citizens. Um, in a way did what yeah. SimCity 2013 tried to do, but way better. Um, yeah, I'd say all those kind of fit that mold too. Last one, or are we out? Uh, we, we can probably do one more. We're at like an hour 10. Um, should I pick this one or is there one that like you guys really in particular want to talk about? I do not care. Go for it. All right. Let's talk about origin systems. Uh, these were the guys who did Ultima, Richard Garriott, uh, who went to space and then came back to make an MMO that failed horribly and was shut down after a year. Um, and Origin is is really sort of the, um, if you'll excuse the pun, origin of modern day RPGs to a large extent. I don't think they did the the very first ones, but they were like really early on. You know, Ultima was one of the first series of like RPGs in the way that we think of RPGs, of computer RPGs. For context, the original Ultima came out in 1981. So we're yeah. talking quite old. Uh, and at the same time, they're kind of like not in the lineage of um, RPG games that are actually based on tabletop RPGs. 
Um, you know, they're not like, like Ultima never really had that same sort of crossover into like, like this is like doing D and D too. Like, um, for example, Baldur's Gate did, um, that was kind of a separate thing. In fact, actually Ultima and, um, what was the other, um, studio doing, uh, RPGs like that early on? Uh, I got nothing. I don't remember. Um, I'm sorry. What was the other studio doing games? Like what? Uh, doing like Ultima style, like RPG stuff, like in the eighties. Um, I cannot remember. Um, no, I, I got this. Uh, Sirtec. Then their game series was. Wizardry. Yeah. Wizardry. That's it. Um, yeah. Um, Ultima and Wizardry were actually the, like they inspired the first JRPGs. Like they inspired Dragon Quest. Dragon Quest one was a very sort of Ultima wizardry esque game. Um, so you got this kind of weird sort of crossover lineage where, uh, the Ultima games are not, they're not JRPGs, uh, and they don't really have a lot of the trappings of the JRPGs, but they inspired the initial JRPGs, Final Fantasy Dragon Quest. Um, and uh, kind of evolved in a separate line away from sort of the more modern RPGs that we have that are like Baldur's Gate lineage, where they're based heavily on like RPG systems. And I've only recently, over the past 10 years, kind of moved away from just being like Dungeons and Dragons on a computer. You know what's kind of weird uh, along that line? Actually, one of the really big... and. I think modestly successful uh, series on this genre was Realms of Arcania, which was based on Das Schwarze Auge, which is like the really obscure German version of Dungeons and Dragons. And for some reason, they adapted this. They adapted this mechanically with, I think, a good deal of fidelity, and then actually aesthetically not very much so. Yeah into these, like, wizardry-styled uh, RPGs, which are not great. And the the sort of conceit with the Ultima games was always um, this sort of generally open world that could be um, sort of attacked in a, a non-linear fashion, uh, not a lot of hand-holding, especially not a lot of hand-holding. Remember, this is an RPG game from the 80s. Um uh, and this sort of like recurring storyline about like the avatar, which is you and actually like you, you physically from the real world getting teleported into this like video game world, which was always a little weird. Um, and kind of about like judging you for the choices you make. Uh, actually, when I'm thinking about it, probably the closest RPGs that we have in the modern era to um, the the sort of aspects that made Ultima unique are probably the Bethesda games um, in terms of structure and, and in terms of like, you know, story focus, I'd say games like, you know, Morrowind, Fallout 3, Oblivion, Skyrim to an extent, you know, are, are very much in that mold of, of what Ultima was trying to do. Uh, now they, you know, Bethesda, of course, has like like a much more robust idea of what it means to be an open world game, and that generally involves really wonky physics and NPCs that clearly have no idea what they're doing. But um, like that aspect of like create a character, you can just kind of create whatever you want, um, and this kind of somewhat disjointed storyline with similar elements across all the games. Um, 
and you know the freedom to kind of explore the world your way and to do like whatever the fuck you want um you know kill npcs if you want to steal stuff whatever um that was all like stuff you could do in the ultima games uh in fact uh they did the first not the first first mmo uh i think that was like technically like meridian 59 the first graphical mmo um or 3d mmo anyway uh well ultima wasn't 3d but uh, ultima online was one of the the early uh prominent mmos uh it came out in 97 i think and um like you could basically do anything in that game you could kill npcs you could kill other players and steal their stuff um you know it was that kind of game like open pvp and like like you can basically do whatever the fuck you want you know none of this like world of warcraft like this is the npc that stands here and they're always here at the end um and uh during the um the closed beta at the end of the closed beta, they had an event where, uh, Richard Garriott was in the game as his, um, you know, sort of self insert character, Lord British that had been in all the Ultima games. Um, and is like, and he was supposed to be unkillable, but, um, a, one of the testers, uh, managed to steal a fireball spell from one of his guards and kill him in the middle of this speech in the middle of like an in-game event for the end of the beta and got banned for it. If if I was going to point to someone sort of making origin style RPGs, Ultima RPG specifically uh, in 2017, I probably would point to Jeff Vogel's work on Avernum. Yeah, I would agree. Um, Like, and that's kind of like a point I want to make about this, which is that I think you could just make a fucking Ultima game, make the interface not suck as hard as all the Ultima games interfaces did, Uh, you know, update the interface and some of the gameplay stuff for like 2017 standards and just make it, uh, you know, a pillars of eternity esque kind of like, like this is a 2d RPG and that's what it is. And we're going to sell it. And I think you could do that and be successful. I mean, I mean, Jeff Vogel is like Jeff Minter in terms of being one of those guys that's been doing his own thing for yeah. God knows how long. Um, I'm I'm looking at Wikipedia right now, and the first Avernum game came out in 2000. He's still in business, as far as I know, making Avernum games. So that is a long indie career in this business. Yeah, yeah. Jeff Vogel is an interesting uh, developer to talk about because he's basically a one-man team and he does just his wheelhouse which is just like 2d rpgs um and he's been doing that for years and years and years but like i don't think there's anything about the ultima formula that is like outdated aside from you know graphics and interface and like these kind of things that you'd expect to get updated anyway i'd agree with that and i think we're in like we're we're in a revival for like 2d rpgs like 90s rpgs um and i think it would be really cool to see an ultima-esque game or just a new ultima game uh show up although i think ea still owns the ultima license for whatever that's worth i wonder if they're ever going to re-release an ultima game not re-release make a new ultima game 
I was going to say, didn't they re-release Ultima you'd Online th- a few years ago? You'd think EA would be interested in having sort of a, a big, classically acclaimed RPG that could rival their Bethesda and 2K competitors with uh, Oblivion or whatever. Like, if, if you could have an Elder Scrolls com- competing game that has the, the history of Ultima behind it. I mean... I, I, I guess maybe they're afraid to do it without Garriott. Garriott is making a game still. It looks terrible. Um, It's like some sort of uh, Ultima Online successor-esque game that he did like a Kickstarter for. But like, I I think the other issue is that EA already has Bioware. And I think like... I I shouldn't laugh, but 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 I, I know people that work at Bioware, and I shouldn't laugh, but it's not the same thing as, as a, a Bethesda RPG. But like, what does it look like on a corporate level? Um, you know, like like yeah. they were clearly trying to do Bethesda esque stuff when they did Inquisition and and Andromeda both with that sort of like big open world. They they missed the point entirely and made something that was more like an MMO that sucked, uh, but. You know, there was that element of like, hey, people like Bethesda games. Bethesda games are really uh, a big takeoff. Like, let's do, let's incorporate big open world stuff into our games. Uh, Beth- the, the thing with Bethesda, it's really interesting. They don't really have any com- like direct competitors for games of that specific exact type. Um, maybe the closest would be The Witcher 3, but... The Witcher 3 is still much more Bioware-esque and Obsidian-esque in its um, design focus. Like, nobody makes open-world RPGs where the idea is to, like, systemize the world uh, and, like, not put too many barriers into the way of what the player can do. So if the player just wants to to steal all of the cheese wheels in the town, they can. I want to play cheese wheel thief. <laughs> but like, I expect like if if EA ever did revive Ultima, they wouldn't do it like a Bethesda game. They would just like give it to Bioware or something and have them make it, or they turn it into some generic shooter or something. Like I have no faith in EA being able to the Ultima shooter. Yeah, yeah, you know, like XCOM. That worked out so well. Granted, that was 2K, but still. All right, I think we're done. Well, we need yeah, to... Yeah, let's, let's call it a wrap. <laughs> what just have gonna... we learned here today? Okay, I was going to say, we got to do an outro. <laughs> we're not just going to leave it on like, well, Josh said some stuff about Bethesda and EA. Yeah, you know, I, I think we expected to have a slightly more cohesive vision for where each of these individual properties could go. But I think what we've discovered is a lot of these kinds of games, people kept trying to make them sort of, and there isn't really a clear like end destination. Yeah. I think we just sort of moved on away from a lot of these genres, FMV games, RTS games. They either are, they either still exist or people have been trying to remake them for years and it just never clicked. That's depressing somehow. Guys, do you think that it could be that that making video games is hard?
God, no, I absolutely not. not. Oh, okay, good. I was I was worried there for just a second. No, just a bunch of lazy devs. <laughs> devs too lazy. That's yeah, my favorite. Fuck those guys. Yeah, this 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 dev team that went into crush for crunch for four months and didn't get to see their families and then immediately got laid off. They were really lazy. Just saying, I don't see any ultimas. <laughs> lazy devs. <laughs> I mean, you, to get an indie ultimate, you'd also have to steal it from the second largest game publisher. So let's make a game about IP Let's call it. <laughs> See you next week, everybody. Bye.